Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Welcome. My name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisich. How you going, Mark? Very well, thanks, Chris. It was an interesting month. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went in November? After a strong October, performance for the month of November was up 2.6% versus the ASX Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index of 2.8% in NZD terms. The Small Ordinaries Index was boosted from a powerful performance from resource stocks, with the Small Ordinaries Resource Index being up 11.6%. Resources is an area we typically don't have a high exposure to given the cyclicality and low returns on capital. It was also AGM season in November. Were there any companies that stood out to you? There are a number of interesting updates. One in particular was Durotech. Durotech's a civil contractor, but not as you know it. Let's set the scene. At Discovery, we avoid companies with low base rates for success. Civil contractors fall into that category. They typically execute large contracts at fixed prices, picture building dams, bridges and wind farms. They do so at low margins and put their balance sheet up as security. Unfortunately, things frequently go wrong with large projects, and when they do, profits disappear and so do the company's balance sheets. RCR Tomlinson, Forge, Deckmill are recent examples of listed contractors which have gone into administration. It's easy to see why we typically avoid civil contractors. Accordingly, when we discovered Juratech, we were wary. However, digging deeper, Juratech's not your typical contractor. Three reasons stick out why this is the case. Job size, contract type, and exposure. Take job size. Juratech carries out lots of small jobs, not a couple of large ones. For example, last year it carried out over 1,600 jobs across 550 clients. Looking at contract type, Durotex provides specialised maintenance work. Think refurbishing a crushing plant at an iron ore mine. It's specialist work, it's business critical, and allows Durotex to earn high margins. More importantly, it's typically paid on an agreed schedule of rates, rather than fixed price contracts like most other civil contractors. And finally, exposure. Durotex carries out maintenance, remediation, and refurbishment meaning that it's less tied to the economic cycle. Durotech fits many of the four Ps. They are potential, predictability, people and profitability. Durotech positively contributed to performance in November and that was on the back of a strong guidance for the year ahead. They've got a massive pipeline of $1.93 billion and more of this work is having early contractor involvement, which increases the chance of Durotech winning this tender pipeline. Short term, there are three reasons to be confident about the company. Firstly, the guidance they gave of 32 to 35 million EBITDA looks conservative as it implies minimal organic growth and was given early in the year as well. Secondly, the valuation is cheap. It's trading just 2.3 times EV to EBITDA and it's growing 30%. And then lastly, they've acquired Wilson pipe fabrication recently. So Wilson's provide maintenance services to the oil and gas industry, and this is an area which Durotech had limited exposure previously. There's a substantial pipeline of work and the ability to expand their service geographic to areas where Durotech currently operate. 
The acquisition was for all cash, as the Juratech management team were unwilling to dilute given the low share price at the time. The initial consideration was $9 million. And we understand the vendor used 2 mil of his proceeds to purchase Juratech shares on market, given his view of the upside of Juratech and the strong company culture. All of these factors provide us with confidence that Juratech is in a fantastic position for the short term. Yeah, agree. Short term looks powerful and we, we love that alignment from insiders. Longer term, uh, taking the view, management employees own 39% of the shares on issue. We believe that this is part of the reason Juratech's grown revenue an average annual rate of 30% for the last 12 years. With exposure to high growth areas such as defence, oil and gas and mining, we're backing management to continue executing. One final point of interest in November was Monodelphysis AGM. So Monodelphysis is a large engineering and construction company. It's interesting to note that Monodelphysis called out their strong balance sheet and keeping their eye on assessing acquisition opportunities. Monos is trading 10 times EVD but DAR versus Juratech at barely over two times. You'd think that bolting on a high growth company which diversifies their exposure would make a lot of sense. Juratech contributed positively to to performance during the month, but we don't get everything right. Detracting for performance in November was Live360. 360 is a US mobile app company. Their app allows families to share the location and provides driver assistance. So think AA Roadside Assist, which we have in New Zealand. 360 users are based predominantly in the US and has had quite an eventful list of Live360. Post its IPO in 2019, it initially struggled for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was a US company listing in Australia, which always raises questions marks around why are they listing down under. And then secondly, it was a loss-making business with no clear path to profitability. The catalyst for change, though, has been rising price increases post-COVID. Pricing power, as you know, is a hallmark of great companies. Last month, 360 further re-rated as it announced significant price increases of over 50% for their new monthly users on its most popular gold plan, and they haven't seen a material increase in churn. So this is all sounding really positive. So what's actually caused the share price to go down subsequently? Unfortunately, 360's November update was less inspiring than its October one. 360 downgraded revenue and earnings on the back of softer hardware sales. In November last year, 360 acquired Tile, think Apple AirTags, which has underperformed expectations. While one-off sales of Tile tags are non-core everyone's thesis, they're important for cash flow. These slower sales were followed up by a capital raise to shore up the balance sheet. We didn't participate as working capital raises typically don't work. Mark, what's your view on the short term? Well, short term, I think it's difficult to see a fundamental catalyst that the market is not aware of here. 360 is guided to a relatively flat subscription number for Q4. They've quantified the benefit of the revenue uplift from the, the price rises. And if we look at seasonality, we su- suspect that the subdued subs growth will probably flow right through into to Q1 as well as consumers digest the price increases. What do you think about the long term? Long term, it depends whether you're a purist or a pragmatist. If you're a purist, you'd say 360's value depends on a combination of revenue growth, margin, and multiple. What margin could 360 earn in the long term? Well, that sounds like a difficult question. You're essentially asking, what is a user worth? Post-price rises, 360 could earn, say, $180 per annum for a gold user. 
churn is reasonably predictable and they provide some nice helpful charts in their presentation. If 360 held the cost to acquire a user at historic levels, the return for a user would be in the mid-teens. However, the cost to acquire a paying user appears to have grown rapidly too. So what's 360 worth in the long term? For a purist, it's a difficult question. For a pragmatist, it's much easier. Let's tick them off. 360s will likely grow its revenue over 30% next year. It's got to cash flow break even in Q3 FY23. Now, don't get us started on those share-based payments. It also has significant optionality from monetizing free users. Summing it up, it's a combination which is rare to find on the ASX. Pragmatists that have lots of opportunity to make multiples on the stock before anyone will work out if the purist is right or not. Juratech and 360 were just two of over 60 meetings we had in November with companies and industry e- experts. We received a lot of feedback from the front line. Was there anything which jumped out at you? Yeah, we've had a number of meetings, as you've said, this month, and some of those meetings were with companies in the finance sector. And we took a look at these companies because they've derated significantly over the last year. Many of these stocks are now trading at only four to five times net profit after tax. A common thematic from these management teams, in addition to the wage pressures which we discussed last month, is rising finance costs. Fortunately, most companies in our portfolio are net cash or have got low levels of gearing, so there's little impact on them, but finance companies need leverage to make their business models work. Just like consumers are getting squeezed with mortgage rates going up and up, so are these non-bank lenders. Their funding costs are escalating and they're unable to pass these costs on straight away to their consumers, and that's caused a significant issue for these stocks. The other interesting bit of feedback, which I've only uh, recently come across, is the banks have got this unfair advantages uh, since, since COVID. So the banks are benefiting from what they call the term funding facility from the Reserve Bank of Australia. This was put in during COVID times, and it's allowed them to borrow $188 billion at a three-year fixed interest rate of just 0.1%. So basically, this has been a license to print money for the banks, especially as interest rates have subsequently increased. This has given the banks a completely unfair competitive advantage over their non-banking rivals who who can't access this funding, and no wonder we're seeing CBA hitting an all-time high in this environment. Was there anything that jumped out at you? Yeah, look, we're always on the lookout for useful mental models. Prior examples include COVID winners and losers and reopening place. One potential one jumped out at me during the month. There's a company called Elders listed on the ASX, which provides agricultural products and services to customers in Australia. Page 35 of their full-year presentation included a slide which demonstrated that Elders' profit growth during periods of El Nino that's dry weather, versus La Nina, wet weather. Unsurprisingly, the wet weather is caused, caused by La Nina has provided a strong tailwind for Alder's earnings. There's been definite winners and losers from La Nina. Winners include ag stocks such as Alder's and John's Ling's, John Ling's Group. There are also losers, such as Mars Group and Ardent Leisure. The key takeaway is companies don't call out tailwinds, but it's always important to understand what's driving profits, and whether it will persist. La Nina is due to hold until early 2023. It's then forecast to move into a neutral phase. This should provide some relief for La Nina losers. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX this month. What do you have for us? 
I've got a leader again this month and they are IPD Group, ticker IPG.ASX. They are a leading national distributor and service provider to the Australian electrical market. This is a company that was up over 30% for the month and over 150% since its IPO, which was less than a year ago. So what's getting the market excited about IPD is its exposure to the electric vehicle charging market. And at their AGM, they talked this up a lot. They indicated the size of the opportunity with, within storage capacity is going to be increased by a factor of 50 times between now and 2050. They also said there would be 3 million EVs on the road in Australia by 2030. So this is all very positive and IPD is in a great position to service this demand as they've got an exclusive distribution agreement uh, in Australia f for EV charging equipment and this is supplied by the Swedish company ABB and ABB is one of the leaders globally in this field so IPD is in a great place to service this demand and the demand is helping propel the business to EBITDA growth rates of plus 20% and this is exceptionally strong for a, a distribution business which they typically grow around GDP or just a bit over GDP growth so IPD is definitely taking market share. The other thing that uh, caught the market's attention is they're likely to do further M&A. Now the share price has gone up a lot as discussed and then now there's a large arbitrage between what they can acquire businesses at which they typically pay between three to five times EBITDA and this is compared to their own multiple now which is around nine to ten times. There was other news that the CFO and the largest shareholder Mohammed He's actually moved to a strategic role to focus on M&A. So this suggests M&A is going to be a key focus for the business going forward. The extra point that I thought was interesting is they're meant to be conducting a couple of site tours of their facilities in the coming weeks. You don't have an open home unless you want to sell your house. So the stars could be really aligning for a capital raise to support an acquisition. Well, that's a leader for the month. What have you brought us today? I'll balance things out with a laggard. What I've brought is Bravera Solutions. Bravura provides software products and services for the wealth management and fund administration sectors globally. Bravura was down over 30% during the month after guiding to EBITDA of 10 to 14 million for FY23 versus market consensus of 43 million. The move continues a long period of decline for Bravura, down 70% year to date, and in fact it was over $6 pre-COVID, meaning a 90% loss from, from that time. Bravura's problems are both structural and cyclical. Structurally, it's twofold. One, Bravura has significant tech debt in the wealth management business. And two, Bravura's transitioning from upfront licenses to subscription revenue, which has a significant impact on profitability. There's also cyclical pressures. Bravura has faced inflationary pressures with talent located in high-cost markets and high turnover in their low-cost Indian market. Unfortunately, it hasn't been able to pass on these price pressures to clients because it has long-term fixed-price contracts. That's right, and the stock's been absolutely battered, and I think it's now trading at just one times revenue. And the day that it fell significantly, uh, I saw the chairman bought over 600,000 shares, and there's, there's been a bit of other direct buying since. So obviously some people are seeing value here who are inside and close to the company. It's recently been awarded a large contract to provide uh, Colonial First State its Sonata Alta product and potentially there's other large Australian super funds in the pipe. There's definitely some positive points for Bravura. 
the market has focused on Bravura's wealth management solution, but I question whether they're looking in the right place. Stick with me for a moment. Bravura offers wealth management and fund administration services. Fund administration is a 47% EBITDA margin business and was over half the profits last year. The interesting point is that while it's over 55% of EBITDA, Bravura previously indicated that the capitalised R&D is focused on wealth management. You could assume from that that Funds Admin is pretty much the entire profit engine for the business. We had an industry call about 12 months ago which indicated that Bravura clients were unhappy with the legacy funds administration system, but it was really difficult moving away. The interesting point here is that part of the downgrade was that two long-standing fund administration clients were moving to outsource situations. That raises the question, is there more to come? Stepping back, what's the takeaway? Prior to the downgrade, you had a new CEO, new CFO, and a strategic review. We know that the base rates when one of those occurs isn't great, let alone three. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.